Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We're also available worldwide to the masses where you can listen to us live. We're at RadioNorthland.org and we're on the TuneIn app for you smartphone users. That's uh, a great little app that's uh, totally free. Oh, you got to like free. And you can check out not only us live at RadioNorthland.org, but we are available... Yes, our archives at RadioNorthland.org, Rasslin' Memories, then and now page. It's there. You can check out over six, almost seven, it's over seven years now of Rasslin' Memories uh, episodes. Hi, Glenn Brogan, along with the grizzled vet back from his assignment of booking quality interviews, Mr. Mike McCurdy, the grizzled vet himself. Mike, it's so good to hear you once again. How are things going in the uh, great state of Texas? Everything's going great in the uh, state of Texas today, man. Enjoying myself and... Once again, looking forward to another episode of Wrestling Memories. We've got a great guest. Like you said, on assignment, got this guest book, got a few others coming up in the next few weeks. I think our listeners are going to enjoy. So, you know, it's been a good assignment this time. Oh, it, it sounds like it. And uh, definitely uh, some good stuff coming up in the coming weeks here on Wrestling Memories Then and Now from Mike. And I've been working on a few uh, interviews myself. But today, uh, you're kind of keeping in a tradition of something that I, I, I've kind of slowly gotten the ball rolling on, Mike. A, a little series of interviews that I've started uh, a couple of weeks back with Chris Curtis about some of the uh, the job guys, the uh, the journeymen, the 150 guys. And, and Mike, you were able to find another great one. Uh, I can't wait to chat with him. Uh, again, You've went above and beyond. Well, you know, um, I've had a chance to interview this guest in the past on a previous show, and I'll always a great story. Like you said, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of people are going to recognize this man, not just as you referred to the 150 guys, but also a lot of big, big career in the territories, man. If you follow oh, yeah. his, you know, look him up, follow his uh, matches and all that, you're going to find out he's worked in probably every territory out there during his career. An amazing time this man has had in the ring, and I'm looking forward to uh, speaking with him today. Oh, absolutely, and without any further ado, like you mentioned, this guy has been, he's very fortunate to have been a part of pro wrestling in the scene as, towards the end of the territory days, Southwest Championship Wrestling, Central States, WWF, World Class, and then some. We're going to talk about as much of that as we possibly can. He's also an author, uh, a great little book, uh, uh, The Wrestling Journeyman, Life and Times of an Indie Wrestler. Uh, this is the man I've been wanting to chat with. He's been on my list for quite some time. I'd like to welcome him, uh, Dusty Wolf, uh, to the program. Welcome to Wrestling Memories Then and Now, my friend. Yeah, thank you. How are you guys doing? Oh, doing very well. A little bit on the cooler side up here in uh, Minnesota. Probably uh, uh, not quite as cold where you're at today. No, those are the reasons I stay in South Texas. Uh, I run around in flip-flops and shorts. <laughs> You are a lucky, lucky man indeed. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your, your schedule uh, to, to chat with us. Like I said, I've been kind of starting a series of uh, talking with a few of the underneath guys who who did a lot of great uh-huh. things and, and put a lot of people over. But your career is not just as an underneath guy. I mean, you've done some other stuff. Uh, you, you, you've worked in many territories and, and just amazing. I was just kind of going through and taking notes or looking through the notes before uh, I got started. And I am I am impressed, man. I, I, I remember watching you on, on WWF television. And, and, and WCW later on, and I've read about you in certain stuff. But man, the 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 time that you got to spend in the ring, you, it was very very uh, beneficial because you were right there towards the end of the uh, territory days. Yeah, I came along uh, when I came along in '82. Vince, uh, Mr. Lesser, Vince, we know he was beginning to make moves, but his dad still owned the company, so you still had territories and. Even with Vince making his moves, the territories lasted another 
six, eight years before it just got to the point where nobody could make any money with them. But yeah, I was, you know, I was out there in them trying to make a living and going to wherever anybody would hire me. I don't want to talk about how you actually got broken into the pro wrestling business. Were you a fan growing up watching uh, of pro wrestling? Was it something that you were interested uh, at a young age? Uh, tell tell us about uh, how wrestling kind of came into your life. Well, yeah, I was uh, no doubt about it. I was a fan, uh, watched it, and I had been a, an athlete younger, you know, junior high, high school, that sort of thing. Uh, and I hit like 18, 19, I'd already graduated from high school, already quit college, already got married and divorced. Uh, my baseball days were over. And I said, well, I'm going to give this wrestling a try. I'm young. I can always go back to college if it doesn't work out for me. And I went to college. I went back to college like 27 years later. And, you know, that's it. that is, in a nutshell, that's it. I didn't have family. I didn't have uh, anybody just invite me in or say, hey, we like you or anything like that. You know, I had to knock on the doors. And, and and who was the one that actually, you know, got you in as far as, you know, getting into training and stuff? Because pro wrestling uh, back then, I mean, you talk about today where there's a, a trainer or a wannabe uh, on every corner. Uh, there was a little bit more of yeah. a guarded thing back in the day. Talk about how you got into the, uh, the, the pro wrestling, just finding your way in. I mean, that's difficult in and of itself. Well, yeah, because they, they being the talent, they being the promoters, tended to protect what they had. Um, those guys were smarter than the guys today. We don't need a thousand new guys. We need a handful of new ones that could potentially do something, but just as I say, a handful. And finding that first person that would even do anything with you was was tough. Um, I, I met Ken Johnson through Jose Lothario, and we've been buddies ever since. You know, that's like 40 years now. Um, he started working out with me. And we worked out for, I want to say, five, six months. One day, I just told Ken, I said, I'm not going to get any better no matter how much you teach me if I don't get in a ring. I had not been in a ring yet. I've been on mats, and I've been on hardwood floors, and I'd been in the boxing gym, and that sort of thing, but I had not actually been where you could get ring smart, of knowledge of where you're at in the ring. None of that. And... So he's like, well, the only, in those days, not everybody and his brother had a ring either. So there was like one ring you knew of you could go to, and that was the one in the junction that the Blanchers ran southwest out of. We go down on a Monday night when they film TV to ask permission to work out like once a week, twice a week, maybe. And Tully looks at me, and Joe looks at me, and do you have your stuff? No. I didn't come down to work. I came down to hopefully, you know, whatever we needed, what arrangements we need to make to get in that ring to keep my training going. Cause they knew Ken, Ken knew them. Well, we need somebody new. And basically I got destroyed that night. That was my first match. Um, Archie Goldie, Mark Goldie Stomper. For whatever reason, uh, the Blanchards liked me after a couple of matches, Luke Williams took over the book in this time period I'm talking about. And the three of them sat down with me and said, we want you to go work out with Don Carson. So then I spent the next Five months, six months, getting the odd match here and there on TV, you know, a spot show here and there while I was training with Carson. And that's how I got into business. 
and the Southwest Championship Wrestling, what, what, one of those uh, promotions that I, I've been able to, you know, through through the years, you know, through online and stuff, have been able to watch a lot of that 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 action, and it was definitely a very exciting product, very different uh, from. There was definitely some similarities, but there was also some differences as, as far as Texas wrestling when you compared it to what what the Von Erichs were putting out at the time. I mean, these were uh, guys in, in the different part of the state, but they were able to uh, keep things going. Also, had a deal for a while there on the USA Network. Yeah, they were actually they the ones that showed Joe, they Joe Tully, they're the ones that showed Vince that you could put TV on the USA Network. They're the ones that showed the USA Network wrestling fits their programming because they actually had the slot, the time slot that Vince ended up buying out. So you say it's different, it's a different product because you weren't trying to make three brothers God. You had you had to try to generate some heat and some interest among other people besides the three brothers so that in itself will make a different product and you had a chance uh, you mentioned uh, briefly jose lothario uh what are your memories uh, yep. uh, of of working uh, in those early days with with jose around i mean jose was still very much in in in, in a pro wrestling career not ready to wind it down just yet but uh what was uh, that experience like to have a veteran uh, who is uh, a known uh, box office commodity like jose lothario uh you know you know being around in those days as you were developing well it's always good to have somebody that has that level of knowledge around. Because even if you don't realize you're learning, you're learning. Jose wasn't doing that much San Antonio itself. He was still huge in Houston. It was like the very end of his big Houston run that started in the late 70s. Uh, so he was around a little bit more. And he, like I said, you could pick up. And there's so much, not just Jose, but guys, other guys down through the years that did stuff. I didn't realize how much I was picking up as far as not necessarily in the ring, but how to survive, what the business was about, that sort of thing. Until later, when you just one day you realize that's what this was all about. And so, I mean, he was he was instrumental in that the first couple of years. And who were some of the other guys too that you were around that were were, were there that were kind of an influence on you that kind of helped out and gave you little pointers here and there, and it just kind of helped you along with that uh, early part of your pro wrestling education. And the first part of my career. Luke Williams, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have a career without Luke, to be honest. You know, when you get older and you look back and you see how everything fell into place. Uh, so definitely Luke's on that list in the first couple of years. No two ways about it. Before I left San Antonio, Luke, uh, Kenny Timms became influential later. Scott Casey, of all people, helped me. Tully, as bad a reputation as Tully's had and earned and the things that Tully's done, Tully helped take care of me for whatever reason. I've never known and I've never asked. You talked about, uh, you know, you, you kind of cut your teeth in Southwest Championship Wrestling. Another big, uh, you know, part of territory that was uh, around uh, for a while until it also uh, met the same fate as many was uh, the Central States Territory. Now, who talked you into uh, going up into the Central States and getting some seasoning me? there? I didn't know exactly how or why, but Joe Blanchard had said a few things along the way. A couple of people had said a couple of things along the way that basically they amounted to that a local guy is not going to get a push. Just, you know, we break him in, we push him, we make, because too many people know the local guy, which is part of the problem you have today with all the little groups. Everybody knows those guys. But anyway, getting back to that then, uh, I had made up my mind. I was going to do everything I could to be some sort of success. It wasn't to me. It didn't make sense to just 
go through all of this and then not really try. It made no sense. So anyway, uh, I tried to go just about any and everywhere that would have me because I had hit whatever ceiling I was going to hit in San Antonio at that time. Come back a year or two later, people tend to forget that they they grew up with you. They tend to forget they went to school with you. That's what they uh, they can create the myths. They can come up with the K-Face story. And you learn. You're not learning in front of that crowd. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so my whole deal was I got to go somewhere. And Buck Rowley called me at the end of 83. I mean, literally, as they were going into the Christmas break. And, you know, you want to come in, blah, blah, blah. Yes, I need you know I need to move forward a little bit somewhere somehow, and that's how that happened. And while in central states, uh, you was that around the same time with 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 Geigel was still there and uh, and Bob Brown. Geigel was always there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Geigel was Geigel always there, was but always I mean Bob, there. Bob, 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 yeah. Bob, yeah I, mean, I think I mentioned Bob Brown uh, was was Bob in, in the same uh, sort of in the territory. Yeah, he, he was he came with the lease. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, he was he was part of the furniture. Yeah, it was. He was going nowhere. So, what would you compare that atmosphere like? Uh, you know, to uh, what you had in uh, with with Joe Blanchard in Southwest Championship Wrestling when you're going up to Central States uh, through the Buck Robley connection. You're learning uh, the Geigel, you know, what the Geigel way is all about. Uh, what was that like to be up there, and, and what was the, the differences uh, when you when you compare the uh, the two places uh, at that time? The product or behind the scenes? Um, we could probably go with both and make it a two parter. The product, uh, Joe was a firm believer in action. Joe was a firm believer in that, that Texas brutality style that Texas has always had the reputation about in the past. Whereas Geigel was more map based. He was more, it's wrestling, you know, that, that old promo, the Hollywood cut. Um, and that, in the product is, is a major difference. Um, Joe's product was, I won't go to, I won't say that it was very modern for the time, but it was more modern than Geigel's. I'm talking about, say, the TV product, uh, than Geigel's was at the time. Geigel's was stuck in the 60s, except it was color. Um, but Joe was an outlaw. Joe's, he was always a great guy to me, but he he was an outlaw when it came to the way he did business and and who he did business with and that sort of thing. Geigo was very much the NWA, all about being the NWA and the connections and that sort of thing. And I'm saying that Joe didn't have them, and a lot of them were the same ones because you had that clique that came through the AAU and the NCAA amateurs in those days. And a lot of that same clique played Canadian football together. And so they you know, they all knew each other. They all stuck together. But Geigel was very much the politics of how wrestling worked. Whereas Joe was, you know, he dealt with them if he had to. And otherwise, he just did his own thing. And another thing with the location of Central States uh, in that territory, you you had also an opportunity before uh, the well pretty much dried up uh, for uh, shows that in the legendary Keel Auditorium as far as the uh-huh. pre McMahon. What was that like to uh, work those shows? Because you hear so much about the the legend of St. Louis being this standalone wrestling town that was able to it promote was. within itself. What was your memories? The first couple, of, I went in Kansas City three different years, and the first couple of years I went in. It still had the the mystique, 
it still had the image of the keel. The shows were much more structured than anything I had ever seen. Uh, There was a mentality there more of wrestling being a sport than an attraction or a sport than entertainment in St. Louis. They weren't real heavy on gimmicks, so to speak. That sort of thing. It was, you get in the ring, and the ring was like the size of a football field, and you worked. And, and I say, as I say, there was a mystique to it, just, just the, the manner and, and the way they presented the package to the people was two or three steps above anything you saw anywhere, at least as far as I had at that point in time. And you early on, you mentioned uh, your tag team partner uh, and a gentleman I think that's uh, quite quite underrated as far as you know his history has moved on. Uh, in, in some cases, uh, some people have forgotten about this man. But if you can go back and find the tapes, this guy, I you guys work quite t- well together. I want to talk about and, and just put a light on on Ken Timms and your your uh, partnership uh-huh. uh, with with Ken because I, I just don't think he gets mentioned enough. I mean, this was a guy uh, that, no, that, that that worked and had a very successful career, but he was wasn't uh, on, on the McMahon network. He wasn't, uh, you know, always in the after mags. This was a guy that uh, was a very much uh, a blue collar uh, wrestler. But let's talk about Ken Timms and, and how you got coupled with Ken and how you ended up working with him in a tag. He was here working for uh, Joe. And we met and became pretty good buddies before I went to Kansas City. And I went to Kansas City and I was in Kansas City four months, roughly four months. And Buck gets fired, new booker, sweeps clean, the whole nine yards. I got uh, Marty Gennetti's when that's when they first hired Marty Gennetti, and he took the spot I had, which, you know, in hindsight, well, wasn't a bad move at the time, I guess. Uh, anyway, I came home. I was working a little bit for Southwest, but I wasn't getting anywhere with them. Uh, looking for a place to go. Ken Tim calls me. He says, hey, come to the house one day. I said, okay. And so I go over to his house. We're having breakfast lunch, whatever, and he says, Memphis wants a new team. Eric, who was his partner here, Embry, was not going to Memphis because he was trying to buy the office from Joe Blanchard at the time, and he had taken control of the book, all that. And so he wasn't going to Memphis, and Kenny wasn't happy with his money, wasn't happy with what was going on here because of all the changes. And so I said, what do I need to do? When do we leave? You know, I was, we're going to Memphis. And so, of course, we had, I had to do my hair. And about a month later is when we started in Memphis. And he and I teamed off and on. Well, we stayed full-time for about the next year or so. And then off and on for another four or five. And so we stayed friends until we lost him. You talk about moving on uh, and working in Memphis. Uh, now, again, another you, you've worked with so many of these great promoters that people mention and talk about in history. Now, you ended up uh, moving to Memphis and uh, working with, with Jerry Jarrett in, in, in Memphis. What, uh-huh. was that? What, what would you talk about? How would you compare Jerry's work and style and dealing with Jerry uh, now, uh, him into the mix as far as your experience goes? I mean, you've already worked with Geigel. You've worked with Blanchard. Well, let's talk a little bit about your, your dealings with Jerry Jarrett. I've never seen anything like him. Uh, obviously he was successful. And part of the reason he was successful is he, when he booked, he didn't book with the mentality that I have to keep cafe in the, in, in the angles. I just have to book entertaining angles. And I remember asking him that one day we were at Memphis TV channel five. I think it was, we would be there Saturday morning. God, 
forsaken son up almost. And I'm talking to him about that one time because I had worked for Joe. I had made a few shows for Fritz by then. I hadn't really worked the territory yet, but I, I did later. Uh, I'd worked for Guy. I've been in these guys that were, you know, K-Face, K-Face, K-Face. And he's like, you're either pregnant or you're not. You can't be a little bit of both. The average fan out there, they know it's a work, but we can present it to them as, the, you know, the talent itself presents the product as if it's not a work, as if it is a shoot. But the angle, I present it as entertainment. I don't present it as a shoot. And that's the way I book. And I had never seen or heard anything like that. That just that blew my mind. You had a chance to also, I mean, we look at the locker room in, in Memphis at that time. And in, in, uh, what, long summer of 84, you had still had Randy Savage. Uh-huh. Uh, there was, of course, Lawler. Yeah. And you also had guys like who were just about ready to, to, to move up their star rising, like Jim Neidhart. And, of course, uh, not necessarily in the WWF, but in other places he's been, he was a, a very much a character throughout his life, Eddie Gilbert. What was it like to have those, be in the locker room with those guys? What was it like being around uh, some of those guys? Did you like them? Did you get, were you okay with them? What, what was most of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got along with most of them. The the hardcore Memphis guys like Dutch and you know I love Jimmy Hart, but Jimmy Hart was like the ultimate stooge. The Memphis guys they were all stooges to each other about each other. That's how they survived. Like uh, Jimmy was Lawler's stooge. Dutch was whoever was booking, and if Dutch had to book, he was his own stooge. Uh, it was that was a funny dynamic. You know, looking back, you realize that's how they stayed there for. 30 years is they just brown nose their way into staying there. Doesn't mean that they didn't have, didn't have talent. I'm not saying that, but that's why they, you know, outside of a, uh, a year here or a year there, they spent 30, 40 years in Memphis. Um, that was something that was amazing to me. I had never seen that many stooges in one place. Uh, I'm still amused by that. You know, 35 years later, I'm still just laugh at it. You're listening to Rasslin' Memories oh, Then wow. and Now uh, with Dusty Wolf. Sorry to cut you off, Dusty. We were talking about the Memphis Territory yeah. and uh, working uh, with, with Lawler and uh, and Gilbert and Jimmy Hart. Talking about uh, just the kind of the bizarre stooge culture that uh, that was there while you were in the locker room. I also wanted to mention that the TV studio, but another place that stands out and has been dealing in recent years with the threat of being shut down was uh, the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum. I know uh, that has been a, a big arena, one of the bigger wrestling arenas of its time. What can you remember about working, having an opportunity to to be in a building like the Mid-South? It was interesting. Um, I had been in big buildings before. It's not like this was my first one. You know, uh, you know, Hemisphere Arena here held eight, ten thousand 10,000 people. You had the keel that we just talked about a little bit ago. Uh, and a few other buildings. Uh, I'm completely drawn a blank. Uh, Kansas City was a good four or 5,000 seat arena. What was interesting about Memphis is the Memphis fan was so programmed. It was unbelievable. I had never, I haven't seen that since, except for like Puerto Rico and places like that, but uh, outside of the country, outside of the continental United States, I should say. Uh, the, 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 and they're rowdy, unbelievably rowdy for such a big building. Um, when I say programmed, the first two or three matches, you'd go out and you're thinking, oh, my God, what a horrible house. Because place holds thousands, and there'd be two, 3,000 in the building. And then, especially like when we first started, we're, obviously we're going to be in the first half of the show. You get cleaned up, you come back out to watch the main event because you've never seen Lawler live, and the building's damn near full. They were conditioned to where anything they really wanted to see was after intermission, so that's when they tended to show up. And I had never seen that before or since, that part. 
There was a mentality there that everything revolved around that Monday too. Everything that Memphis, everything hung on what happened in Memphis. Everything. I'm going to bring in Michael McCurdy into the conversation. Mike, uh, I know you're ready to ask a few questions for Dusty Wolf today, my friend. Well, definitely, and um, I want to touch on a couple more of the uh, territories that Dusty has been through. Um, first one I'd like to talk about, it's been mentioned briefly, you had a run in the uh, world-class territory here in uh, Dallas and working with Fritz and all that. You mentioned that briefly about the boys and all that. What was it like? Because it's a topic that comes up a lot on our show and also, you know, world-class championship wrestling is kind of one of those iconic territories mm-hmm. that everyone knows about. What can you tell us about your time and what was it during there at the uh, world-class and the sportatorium? Well, before I came in, it was like one of the hottest places in the world, you know, that 83 into 84, it, it was unbelievable. Um, by the time I got there, it was 86, 87, uh, Brody brought me in and the, the, the brothers were still over like the Cowboys, the Dallas Cowboys, but the houses were down because of all the scandals. Um, sportatorium was a shithole. I don't know if I'm not allowed to say that on radio or not, but it was. It was horrible. But it was one of those places that had a vibe to it. Um, you couldn't feel it in the back in the back in that, that horrible dressing room. But when you walked out into that barn, even when I got there in 86, 87, there was still a certain, I don't want to use the word magic because that's too big of a fan, but it was a certain feel, a vibe an emotion that came out of that place. And those people loved their, their Von Erich. Um, it's one of those things that, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say. So it was just one of those things where those people in that building love them Von Erich. And I, here I am 30 years later and I'm still trying to figure out exactly why, uh, to that level. I really have never quite figured it out. But it was a great experience. I think, oh my God, you're in this place that uh, the building itself was so famous. How many people tried to run in that place for 10 years after the end of world class and run off the strength of being in the sportatorium? Yeah, and they tried to just run off the strength. That's how special the building was to a wrestling fan. They tried to just, we're in the sportatorium, so we must be special. That's how important that building was to the wrestling fan for a long time. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, Brody brought you in, uh, in 86. Uh-huh. What was it, you know, how often did you get a chance to work with Brody and what was, you know, how was it with Brody? You know, cause we hear so many stories about him as well. Well, Brody's all over the road. Cause a lot of the stories are true. Uh, they are Brody likes me. Obviously he brings me into the territory. Uh, we were going to do an angle here in San Antonio with me being Brody's protege. And then I turn on Brody and of course, Brody was going to leave me laying and all that, blah, blah, blah. Of course that, that didn't happen because Brody Robley and Lewin tried to kill the town. But anyway, I working with him in the ring, he was snug. There's no two ways about it. He was six five, you know, two eighty. He that was the way he made his money being snug. He never hurt me. He never had reason to hurt me. Uh because we did whatever we were supposed to be doing, and whether it was two minutes to get him over or we had to get ten in or whatever. I never had a problem. I didn't. Now, you came in and uh, you said 86 in the world class when he brought you in, correct? 
Late '86. Yeah, it was like right before the holiday break, and then I came back. You know, we started back after the break. So back then, that would that was uh, at that point in time would have been World Class Wrestling Association. By that point, mm-hmm. they had left Southwest. Uh, you had a different kind of. You had Black Bart was in there, and Billy Black Bart was like the first champion they had. Chris Adams. You had, who were some of the guys you got to work with during that time? Because obviously, the '80s, early '80s, you had you know the Freebirds. You had the Von mm-hmm. Erichs and all that. It was a different group after it became WCWA. And like I said, Black Bart, mm-hmm. Rick Rude was coming through the time. Who were some of the guys you got to work with? And just kind of what were some of your memories of them? Rude wasn't there yet. Uh, I, had, I was in Memphis with Rude, but Rude wasn't in Dallas when I was there. He came in just right after I left. Um, I worked with Lance a lot. Well, that, that sounds bad. Lance Von Erich, I worked with him a lot. Um the Rock and Roll RPMs, which I had worked with him in Puerto Rico, I worked with him quite a bit. Uh, Bobby Fulton came in with his brother, uh, Jackie. Those were the guys I really remember working with. Now, since you brought the name up, I'm going to ask for a couple stories, or at least one really good one, and that's going to be okay. about Lance Von Eric, because we all know in the Texas Territory, Lance Von Eric has a certain kind of just aura about him because of the storyline that brought him in. What can you tell us a little bit about Lance Von Eric? What kind of a good story do you have working with him? Because he came out of Portland where he wrestled as Ricky Vaughn. Mm-hmm. Lance, to me, is the most underappreciated guy in the entire Dallas story. Which is part of the reason that I still say I don't understand all the love for the brothers that kept screwing up, but the one guy that was working two and three times a night to keep some kind of legacy alive that wasn't his gets no love. Uh, I, I've never understood that out of the marks ever. Uh, the, the World class would have folded probably a year sooner without Lance. Let's just be blunt. Carrie's uh, recovering from the surgery. Kevin's so pilled out of his head that he can't, can't perform. The rest are either dying or dead. Lance is it. And the people were so in love at least that hardcore group of fans were so in love with Von Eric. They were, they loved Lance. He was a Von Eric simply because Fritz said so outside of Dallas, Fort Worth, many people may not have known that the Von Erics weren't all Von Erics, but you know, in Dallas, Fort Worth, it was no secret that even the Von Eric itself was from cafe. Fritz saying, yes, you are a Von Eric. That was just like the Pope anointing somebody. And they go on about their business. Same thing, same level for the rest of the fans there. And without him, they were out of luck. They were, they were done. They were out without Lance. And then because they, he was working three times a night, salvaging somebody else's legacy, he wanted a little more money. Fritz got mad at him. That's when he left. And then Fritz did everything in the world he could to bury him. Now, in an interview one time they did with uh, Gary Hart, he mentions that the fans came up to him and said that they asked him about, and they referred to him as Ricky, because they said he's not a Von Erich. You know, Fritz lied yeah. to us. You know, now I, I'm with you. I think Lance Von Eric. I mean, I watched his stuff up in Portland as well. I think he came in, mm-hmm. he did what he was supposed to do, and he definitely, like you said, he underappreciated. But you know, why do you think all the blame is placed on him? You know, Fritz lied to us. He's not a Von Eric, but yet, you know, we know it's there. Well, we think they know it's a work. You know, what was it? You know, because Lance did get well, the sort of that Fritz wasn't a Fritz Von People exactly. knew Fritz wasn't Fritz Von Erich. They knew he was Jack Atkinson. 
they knew Kerry and Kevin were not on Eric. They were Atkinson because these guys were still an athletes in high school and in the first parts of college. They were known. They were, they were in the papers, that sort of thing. They were on the, the Sunday newscast and whatever, high school athlete of the week. And so the people knew. Why? Because it just deflated their whole little fantasy world that they had created as the Von Erichs were saving them. The, the, the cafe worked there, if it makes sense, is what I'm getting at. You know, the Von Erichs were the saviors, and the Von Erichs were the, the, they could live through the Von Erichs. And then all of a sudden, there's no more Von Erichs. And instead of blaming the Von Erichs, who were drug addicts and suicidal and whatever else was going on with them, they blame Lance, who survived. Now, another territory we're going to, we'll discuss a little bit, and then I'm going to pass the mic back over to Glenn, is uh, you went on to work over in Puerto Rico, which is another territory that definitely has an aura about it as far as, you know, wrestling yeah. history and all that goes. So let's hear a little bit three more. Talk a little bit about your time in Puerto Rico. Well, I went three times. Uh, I went 86, I went 91, I went 93. When I went 86, Puerto Rico was still Puerto Rico like we think of it. In 91, it's still showing signs of that. By 93, it was dying off. And by that, I mean absolutely crazy, but for thirsty fans, uh, Sunday nights, 10, 15, 20,000, well, Sunday afternoons, in the evenings, 10, 15,000 people in the stadiums every Sunday. Still bringing in, I mean, really top talent. In 86, still bringing in really top talent. Uh, 91, they're still bringing in some good names. By 93, it was it was falling off. They were hurting. They were beginning to hurt. As far as the work goes, it's one of those places that if, it, well, if you didn't have to deal with Joe Fico, it would be paradise. You'd work four or five days a week and never go more than 100 miles from the house. It would absolutely be, be the greatest place in the world if you didn't have to deal with Joe Fico. Now, who brought you over to Puerto Rico uh, the first time? Let's see, 86? They called me. Um... The RPMs, Mike and Tommy, were in Puerto Rico, and they were doing really well for themselves. And they wanted to run an angle where you had an imposter medic come in and work with the medic, which was, in those days, Jose Estrada. And so they gave me a call and asked me, and I'm like, well, when? And this was on a Monday. We went here Wednesday. And I'm like, I guess I'm supposed to be going to Portland, but... Don't worry about it. We'll, talk, we'll call Portland right now. Just please be here. Blah, blah, blah. And so, I'm like, and of course, I find out three months later they never called Portland, and I had to heat with people in Portland for the rest of my career, even though you know, I should have called. Anyway, uh, that's how that worked. Gonzalez and Carlos got on the phone and called me. You know, when people think about Puerto Rico, obviously one of the more notable things is obviously the passing of Brody. A lot of people said that Puerto Rico – changed as a territory after that incident and a lot of guys weren't going over there anymore were you over there at any point in time during or after that moment my last two trips were my second two trips they were uh 91 i had a a business deal go really bad and i didn't want to go but i had carlos call me you know made me an offer and i didn't want to go but then i had to look at my family and like you know jesus it's either that or i got to make some money so, uh, and then the, the, the deciding factor was when I said, what would Brody have done? And this was the other way around. And when I could tell myself, honestly, Brody would have gone if I had been the one that had been killed in the shot. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm only hurting my family if I don't go. Uh, I refused to have anything to do with Gonzalez when I got there. 
I would deal with Carlos or who was booking it. Yeah, Carlos was booking with Gonzalez. I just refused to. I just wouldn't even deal with Gonzalez. I would deal with Carlos. That sort of thing. And the talent was still coming oh. in. I mean, there were there were guys that would refuse, and, and, and I, I don't blame them. That's you know, their, that's their decisions. Uh, I, if I could have afforded to, I probably wouldn't either. To be honest. Uh, but you could tell that the town had taken a little bit of a dip because of that. Nothing major yet, but it had started. Right now, another thing we can talk about here a little bit, um, well, actually not a little bit, a lot of our listeners, you know, myself, Glenn included, we're in that age room. They're going to remember you and the WWF. You know, Dusty Wolf, you were one of the guys there. Mm-hmm. But at that time, you were you kind of came in. Were you brought in actually as a talent, or were you brought in specifically – to be an enhanced, to help the guys, to put the guys over that, you know, cause at that point in time, it was always, you know, the WWE star versus, you know, Joe, somebody, and that was their TV. And then your main event was, you know, two name guys. And that was it. That's what television was back then. Were you brought in mm-hmm. specifically as one of their enhancement guys or really were you coming hard. in actually? Yeah. I, I was coming home from Hawaii. I worked for Leo Mafia. And I was in LA and I was looking at my payday for four days and I'm like, this just can't keep up. You know, and I, I still had some dates and I was still working world-class at the same time. And I'm like, these paydays are just getting harder and harder and smaller and smaller. And so I picked up the phone while I was in LAX and I called the office. Terry Garvin thankfully was in. I knew Terry Garvin from Kansas city. And I was talking to him and he says, I can get you some dates, but you know, there are people out there taking care of you a little bit here and there. They're still beating you here and there, but you're not, all you're going to do is do a job here, period in a statement. And I told Terry, I said, if you pay me what I hear you're paying, I don't care. I'm not making that kind of money over a period of two or three days elsewhere. And he's like, you sure? And I'm like, Terry, my ego doesn't feed my family. And so he gave me my first couple of dates. And that's all I had out of them for the first two, three months, four months was just TV. I did TV. I did not go. They'd fly me to the next TV. They'd fly me to the next. And then I started getting dates. And over the next year, year and a half, I'd get more dates. I'd get more. And then 89, I went full time for the year. Uh, 90, it slacked off. 91s when the scandal started hitting, so so Vince was reeling things back. I'd have some things personal go wrong, and and there was nothing going on for me with Vince in 91. So that's when I went to Puerto Rico for like two or three months. I called home, checked messages, and one of the messages was they were looking for me. Where was I? Why hadn't I checked in? So I checked in, and they said, we need you. I left, and we left Puerto Rico and went back and stayed till 93, and then that's when I, I left. Now, like I said, you know, for a lot of generations, you know, in 84, 85 is when, you know, Hulkamania was starting, Vince was taking over, uh, mm-hmm. territory starting to go off, Vince was becoming the major thing. And for a lot of people, that's where they know you from. And in fact, that's where I knew you from. And you actually became mm-hmm. like a fairly decent name, you know, fairly na- for doing these, you know, the, the, the job yeah. matches and all that. It speaks to the power of Vince's TV that I spent 29 years in the business. Um, 20 some odd countries, 24, 25 different countries. Some of them I even helped book. Uh, the territories like we've been talking about, 
we figured it out one time. It had to be over 4,000 matches in the ring. And actually, you know, I was in the ring getting paid for them. And all people remember is those six years. That's all they know is those six years. And that's just a testimony to the power of his TV. His power of the WWF, E, G, Y, K, Z, whatever we want to call them. That's, that's just how strong and powerful they are. Now, it wasn't just you, though. I mean, you had to, but there were a lot of guys, you know, you know Barry Horowitz, obviously, one. Uh, mm-hmm. Steve Lombardi, who mm-hmm. was the most of went on after did, you know, Brooklyn Brawler and all But there are a lot of you guys that were, you became names as these enhancements that would wrestle, you know, like Randy Savage or Hogan or what. And that's where you got your names up. But what was it like to go from working the indie territories and all that to go into the WWF at that time? Because, like I said, it was huge. Vince had taken over. WrestleMania was going. And it was just this huge boom for uh, wrestling on a nationwide basis at that time. Besides the paydays, I didn't notice it. I either I was too stupid or I was too eat up with my own ego or combination of the two or what I didn't to me it was just going to work uh hell I the ego didn't get to me until later you know five six years later I'm still beat every time I step in the ring and it still didn't bother me that bad it really didn't but in the beginning it didn't bother me at all in fact I was happy going five minutes instead of 30 minutes and getting two and three five times what I was making going 30 that didn't affect me at all. Uh, I didn't realize just how big Vince's product was at the time. When you get in the middle of something, it's, sometimes it's difficult to gauge just how big it really is, especially a guy like me that wasn't making all the other appearances and doing all the other stuff. You know? uh, looking back, that's when you realize how big it was. Now, who were some of the guys you traveled with on the road at that time? Martel... Barry, uh, I had Zeus for a while, I traveled with Coco, uh, Lanny Poffo. I mean, there's no guarantee we were going to travel the same guys every time because Jesus, he, when I first went there, he was running three towns a night. There was no guarantee, unless you like a part, tag team partner, so there's no guarantee who you were going to be in the same towns with. But yeah, you be the usual suspects, guys like that, that you would think of. You know, like say Coco or Martel, Barry. Can you tell us a little bit about Barry Horowitz? Because, you know, obviously another one of the games you guys made his name, as a, but a very talented, you know, worker in the ring. You know, you obviously traveled him a little bit. You were working at the same time there as he was. What can you tell us a little bit about Barry Horowitz? I think he's the most underrated worker they had. Uh, great guy. I think that's part of his problem. He's too nice. He was a lot like me. He was happy making, making some real money doing what he wanted to do so he didn't rock the boat or say anything or do anything like some of the other guys would do. <laughs> and I think it hurt him in the long run because Barry had the talent. We saw that uh, time after time. Yeah. He's just a good guy all around. I'm going to pass the mic over to Glenn. Glenn, you got some more questions for our guest today? Yeah, I got a couple of questions uh, here uh, before we uh, end uh-huh. up parting today uh, for, for Dusty Wolf. All right. uh, I want to ask a little bit. You were It was very brief. 
Now, back in early 1991, you had a chance to work a taping up in uh, New York, in the New York area, at the Penta Hotel for Universal Wrestling Federation and uh, with yeah. Herb Abrams for the Fury Hour. Could you talk a little bit about that experience? Because a lot of things have been said through the years about Herb Abrams and the UWF. But I want to know what your experience was like uh, and hooking up and, and, and working at that taping and uh, for the UWF and for Herb Abrams. Well, as far as the taping goes, whoever was running the taping for him, the guys that were actually doing the grunt work, they were pretty good. They were they kept pretty good control of the gorilla position and uh, run sheets and everything that's important to making a tape. Uh, so there was no chaos there. But Herb Abrams, I didn't know it at the time. I just thought he was some kind of uh, airhead. Turns out, you know, he was a cokehead and it was a rudderless ship when it came to a boss. It really was. Uh, his money was there, which, you know, in my world, that's all that matters. With a decent booker, he's one guy that actually had a chance, but he was just, he was like Tony Montana. He was so far out of his own product that he couldn't get it together. And then it was doomed for that reason. And he had a lot of guys. I mean, you talk about when you look at these yeah. cards, these tapings, there was just so full of guys that who maybe just a few years removed from uh, the big cards at Res like WrestleMania three. I mean, he had, exactly. he had so many guys like you had you worked with Paul, uh, on that taping with with Paul Orndorff. I mean, look at Paul Orndorff. He, had, mm -hmm. he drew 72,000 people him and, and Hogan in Toronto, for God's sake. So, I mean, you talked about mm -hmm. the money. Herb had the money. Herb had the people signed up. It's just once it came to the actual direction of, of, of keeping this thing right. Float, he just went. I think it was just one of those things where he, a good handler or a couple of people handling that part of the business, make him some sort of personality and the money man. I think that could have worked out because, again, there was so much promise. I mean, for a startup in their first year. That's what I'm saying. There was no, there was no Booker, and there was a rudderless ship. Uh, yeah, it's one of those we'll never know because it never happened. But there was so much promise there. The one thing I've learned. Since I went to Vince in 87, so that's over 30 years now, if you get too big, Vince is going to find a way to take your legs out from under you. And Abrams may not have survived simply because of that, but he definitely, in my mind, had another good two or three years of scratching at that door, challenging, maybe getting a little bit ahead. He had at least a couple of years of more, and it just went up his nose. Mm -hmm. uh, let's take it back. We're going to the mid '90s. You start doing a little more international travel. Uh, I, I mean, you've went over to Japan, but you also toured uh, South Africa in 90, mid '90s, about '96. Can you tell us a little bit about what uh, it was like to go over on a tour uh, of, of, of places like Johannesburg, South Africa? Do you remember? Uh, what are your well, memories? I went uh, seven times to South Africa. What was your memories of those first that first time heading to South Africa? Then, uh, when you went on these tours, first time I went, apartheid was still full effect and that was an eye opener and because of our time was still in full effect all the sanctions that had been leveled against South Africa down through the decades were still full effect so it was like stepping back in time there was some modern technology but it was like uh, the 1950s and not just going into a home or a hotel or, or a business or whatever but in general, because you had the, the separate classes and you know, uh, the wrestling itself 
wasn't the greatest, but the, the, some of the fans, uh, when I say fans, the towns, I mean, you know, we're putting five, ten thousand 10,000 people in these towns, whatever they would run. Cape Town, Durban, Johannesburg that you mentioned. I mean, was, business was good. Uh, the country itself was completely like the first time I went a culture shock. Now you went to Japan. Now, what was that first experience like heading over to to over to Asia and into a place that it was a hotbed for professional wrestling? I mean, they have a, just such a big history uh, in and of themselves. But could you talk about working in Japan? I, I mean, that, that again, speaking of culture shock. Uh, well, I went like five times to Japan. Uh, first. Three, I went for one of the Japanese offices. The last two, I went for uh, the U.S. military. But anyway, going for Japan, going for a Japan office, I was really, really excited because I had been in the business by then 12, 13 years and I hadn't been made Japan. And you knew Japan was a hot, but you knew Japan was a different world. And one of my biggest things was, can I do this? By then, I knew I was a capable hand i was capable i could go anywhere i wanted in the states i could go to africa i had been to africa a few times by then uh i had been to israel i'd been a couple other places could i do japan and uh, i'm not a big fan of the country like some of the guys are but the work the work challenges you 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 have to kick your game up a little bit or you don't survive over there and that was interesting to me even though it's not necessarily my nature my personality i still enjoyed it one more i got to talk about because we, we you know we went through your the cavalcade of promoters here for you uh, you know, today okay. i, I want to i just you you kind of went in and out we kind of worked a little bit you and, and ken uh, for a little bit and you came back in 91 was uh for joseph oldie can you talk about working with Joe Savoldi, the promoter uh, with ICW, and then later, of course, in the early 90s with IWCCW? I was in and out with Mario Savoldi from as early as 1985 until the early 90s, just depending on when he was running, if he was running enough to bother with it, if I was going to be on the East Coast. Yeah, I always liked Mario. Mario was pure carny. He was pure old-style carny. Um and if you knew it, you could deal with him. If you understood what an old style carny was, you were just fine with him. If you didn't, he ate you alive. Uh, but it, it, he's another one that if I, Mario says, hey, Dusty, I need you here, here, here. I never worried about my money. It may not have been everything I wanted to see, but I knew I was going to get it. And I had already agreed to that price. So that's, that was to me, to me, that was as important as anything is I was pretty good for my word and I expected you to be pretty good for your word. And Mario with me, I can't speak for everybody. Always was always. And one more thing before I get back to Mike, uh, you know, I knew you from the magazines before you're, you know, right around the time you started doing WWF TV and there was for, uh, for a period during your stint, uh, that they started calling you Dale. Now let's talk a little bit about that because I, I, I first it, it took a little bit to, to get used to. I mean, just little name changes like that. But I had always remembered you as Dusty. What was the the decision? Right. Was this was this just a a, a name thing? A, a Dusty Rose confession. Dusty thing? Rose came in. Dusty Rose came in. Um, it wasn't the first time this happened to me. Uh, in New York, I've been there what two years, three almost three years, and no, two years. And Patterson's sitting there at lunch, and he says, "Oh, by the way." We're going to have to do something about Dusty. And I'm like, well, what did I do? And she tells me about the name. And I'm like, oh, what happened? And he told me Rhodes was coming in. And I'm like, they can't tell us apart? And he kind of laughs. He says, that's not the point. 
I can't have this and you're here and he's being pushed. And I'm like, just use my middle name. And he's like, well, I told him it's my middle name. Just Dale, just use my middle name. And he's like, well, it's that easy. I said, hey, Graham did the same thing to me in Florida five years ago. So uh, it's not first. Well, that's how that happened. And now we have the answer behind the story. I'm going to bring Mike in uh, for the home stretch, the last stretch here, Mike. Uh, you have right. one more question before we uh, we call it good today with Mr. Dusty Wolf. Um, yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about it. Um, you know, after your after retiring, you said you went back to school. Uh, a lot of our listeners may not know this. You are a history teacher. Um, yeah. You also wrote a book, Journal of a Journeyman, and you've mm-hmm. got quite a few short essay type pieces that are available on Amazon that you can purchase. So you got mm-hmm. into being an author. What else are you doing as far as, you know, are you still kind of involved in wrestling? Do you still keep an eye on it, you know, both indie and national? Because I know you've done some work with some, uh, like, local promotions in your area. I worked with uh, Fred Irvin out in Odessa with old school wrestling until he passed. And beyond that, I don't have anything to do with the wrestling business anymore. I still speak to some folks now and then, and whatever I see online, I know that's what's happening. But I haven't watched an entire show. I have never watched an entire Impact TNA show. Uh, I've never been able to finish a complete Ring of Honor show. I have not watched a complete show on Monday night or whatever other night he's on SmackDown. Uh, tells you how I don't even know what night it is anymore. Um, I'm talking the late nineties, 2000, 2002, even when I was still wrestling. I just I lost interest in the TV product. And I don't care. I just don't. I don't. I'm not going to regain interest because every time that I do watch, and I'll see somebody, I'll see a team, I'll see something that they're interested. In. Then, as I'm kind of like, well, I'm going to watch this. I'm going to see what's going on. Uh, then I, I see a 20 minute damn promo or a skit for 15, and I'm like, okay, this works well for the modern day fan, and they're making money, and bless them, but. I've got better things to watch. So, no, I really don't. I, uh, I, had, I don't do anything anymore. I'll, I'll speak to guys. And that's about it. Uh, before we wrap this up, I hand it back to Glenn. I am going to ask, because you brought the name up, um, outside of, you know, Texas, and a lot of people may not know the name, but you mentioned Fred Urban the third uh, old school mm-hmm. OSW and all that. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your friendship with Fred? Because I had a chance to meet Fred at CAC many years ago, and he always treated me well. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a guy that, you know, it's a chance for our listeners and people out there, you know, to kind of hear about this guy. Because, you know, Fred was one of the genuine good guys in this business. He was the only, I broke in in 1982. So I'm, and I've been out of the business for eight years now. But the point being is I've still talked to people those last eight years. Uh, In all those years, Fred is one of the few if not probably the only one that no one I've ever heard talk bad about. That's just how good a nature of person he was. Uh, he's a little rough around the edges. I mean, if you haven't met him, and you're right. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. But that didn't change the fact that he actually had absolutely had a heart of gold. And if you were his friend, you were his friend forever. And uh, again, he, he, I cannot think of anybody outside of his ex-wife that has a bad thing, <laughs> and we all have one of those somewhere, uh, that could say a bad thing about him. No one. No one that ever dealt with him. I, I've never met him. And that in itself made him rare. It just it just doesn't happen. All of us make somebody mad. He didn't. 
and he had his little uh, little town that he was running, doing fairly well with it. And he had his he had his plans, and they were taking place step by step. And it's just unfortunate we lost him at such a young age. Take the business out of the equation, you know, just the world lost a good guy. I, I agree with that one. Uh, Glenn, I'm going to pass it back over to you. I'm sure we have about time to uh, wrap up this edition of Wrestling Memory. Absolutely, and it's been a fun, fast-paced hour having on Dusty Wolf to uh, share some of his wrestling memories, and it's always uh, good to have you on at any time uh, we decide. Uh, down the road, if we want to do some chatting, you're definitely, the door is open uh, for you, my friend. Okay, that sounds great. Yes, and for Dusty Wolf and the grizzled vet Mike McCurdy, this has been Wrestling Memories Then and Now.